Mood Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. stuff yeah this is a special edition of the lab podcast we are your hosts i'm the l train over there is mr two frames how are you today sir doing well we are uh this is episode 57 and what we're doing with this special edition is looking at a number of short films we're going to recommend a few short films to you talk about them in terms of i think how we can how they communicate ideas to students for our film and literature class and then we're going to end the episode with a interview that we had with one of these uh, short filmmakers. That's not a midget, necessarily. No, I think he's regular height. Yeah, he's probably regular height. So, short film maker. Yeah. And how are we defining a short film? Uh, the students in my English classes have problems with uh, punctuation. They don't do a very good job of knowing when to use quotation marks or underline. Mm-hmm. Basically, I give them a rule where if it takes less than half an hour or a half an hour to read or watch, put quotation marks around it. If it's longer than that, then underline it. So these short films would have quotation marks around them, and I think we could settle on half an hour or less. All right, I think that's fair. Also, we chose films, I think, that we can talk about uh little stylistic things and elements of film, right? Yeah, I think each of these is its own little, like, mini-lesson. And I I mean, that at least that's the way I was viewing it in my head, that I would show this to the students, um, break it down, and then give them a project based around whatever um, aspect of the filmmaking process I feel that this short film is highlighting, whether it's camera work, sound design. I like that. I like that approach. That's how I chose this first film. Written and directed by J. Lazarus Hawk and produced by Craig Brewer. Uh, this film is called The Morning Ritual. It stars Helen Bowman and Bruce Downing as man and housewife. It's an interesting statement about the role of women in modern society. Uh, it has... Well, you laugh. I, I laugh. I don't want to give away anything about the end. No, you don't want to give away anything about the end because that's an important element. I think there's a there's a setup and a payoff. And the idea is communicated very uh, symbolically. I don't think there's any dialogue in this movie. No, that's one of the things I appreciated about it. I picked it up I picked this movie specifically for that, I think, the use of sound. The use of diegetic sound is incredibly important. There's a suspenseful um there's a suspenseful element to the the dripping of the faucet that occurs. And uh, it sort of acts like in the movie The Birds, there's not really a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. This movie is similar to that. The sounds of the birds creates the soundtrack of the birds. This movie, it's the sounds of uh, sort of getting a, getting a meal together or a breakfast together. It's the morning ritual. Um so sound was important, and I think that that's the thing that our students don't really consider much. Uh, the questions it asks are similar to questions uh, raised by like um, Glassbell, or uh, there's a there's a short story called the Story of an Hour, mm-hmm. which or there's another short story and play called A Jury of Her Peers and Trifles, and it all sort of ties in with this experience. So. 
in the literature and film class, I would choose to teach those short stories along with this short film. Um, it also highlights uh, just the subject matter of horror very well and suspense and uh, how that generally works in films is you take something that's very well known or familiar, in this case the morning ritual of making breakfast, and you turn it on its head, and that's where the horror aspect comes from. Think of movies like Cujo taking the household pet of a dog and turning it into a vicious killer. Yeah, good point. Um, you can see this on risingfire.com, and it's put out by Rising Fire Productions, LLC. There's a few other short films there for rent or purchase. Uh, the reason I chose this one, which is actually their oldest film, is because it's, well, because it's free and I'm cheap. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a good idea for the listeners of the show to go listen to these or watch these films, you know. So we're going to put them up as links on our website, and you can go check them out. This is one of the one of the most interesting ones that you can find out there on the internet, I think. It's black and white, but that doesn't really take away anything from it. It gives us a sort of timeless quality. Really liked it. No, I agree. I like the acting, too. Here's another film. This is, um, I found this because we're followed by the uh, Culture Film Festival mm -hmm. on uh, Twitter. And they have a 60-hour film challenge that goes along with their, uh, with their festival. And in it, they challenge filmmakers from around the world to write, shoot, and edit a film that's no longer than five minutes in just 60 hours. The filmmakers are given a title, a line of dialogue, and a proper action that has to be included in the final film. Would you do that in your class? Yeah, I kind of like it because uh, it's a minimalist approach. You you don't have time to overthink anything. And I, I also just like having this hodgepodge of stuff that you have to work with. Yeah, I wonder how they, they come up with the combinations. Because there are three winners that you can look at. I think you can look at ten films overall if you go to the, the Culture Film Festival and uh, click on the links that we provide for you. The three top ones have very different titles and uh, lines of dialogues and props or action. So it seems to be sort of like a hodgepodge of things that you can pick. Like everybody doesn't pick from this. It doesn't have the same thing. Mm. They all have different uh, titles, different actions, different little lines of dialogues. And this one, the, uh, the title that they were given was dynamic. The line of dialogue is get out of the room. And the action prop is a key is tried in a lock, but it doesn't work. Um, this is actually the third place finisher, but it's my favorite of the three, the top three that are out there. It's called, again, Dynamic. And uh, it was directed by Marcus Plowright. You can see a lot more of his stuff on MarcusPlowright.com. But this one you can also see at the ColchesterFilmFestival.com, or ColsterFilmFestival.com. Uh... Let's see, the writer was Toby Morris, stars uh, Brian E. Reese and Ed Coleman. There's a DP, uh, Jenny Sutalia. I think I just mangled that. It's all right. <laughs> and then the music is also provided by uh, uh, Alex Parsons. So this winner, or third place film, has strong acting performances and a very dense plot within those time constraints. They're able to communicate a whole lot of different things in those five minutes. Um, it does interesting things with the title, like the title sequence. It doesn't show it all at once. And that that 
sort of uh, presentation ties into the bigger theme of the film, I think. It's one of those films that makes you reconsider it mm -hmm. after you watch it. Uh, like the first film that we talked about, when you get to the end, you're like, oh, yeah. And then if you think about it and watch it again, you miss the irony, but you can like deconstruct it in your head and it becomes a different experience. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to determine, is this a one-act film or is this like seven? Oh, could it fit into a bigger... Well, just with this the, film with dynamic, the, yeah, yeah, with the editing of it, are those separate acts or separate scenes at least? Hmm, I don't know. I mean, that that's one of those things that would be interesting to discuss. What makes a scene? Well, they're in that locked location in this film, that one that one location. So that might make for a very long film if you stretched them out. But is that is that a scene that like like when it when the Y shows up or the D or whatever? Mm -hmm shows up on the film and it's only there for 10 or 15 seconds. Is that, does that constitute a scene? Yeah. Is that your question? I don't know. Yeah. What, what, you know, one of the larger questions we've been looking at is what makes a short film, right? We had to define that. So mm -hmm. now it's, well, what makes a scene? And I think this movie questions a lot of that. And, you know, yeah, sure. Some of these scenes may only last 10 seconds, but that doesn't mean they're not important and that they don't convey a lot of information and right. advance the plot in interesting and unique ways. Especially the last scene. Like the, if you, if you're thinking of it in those terms, the very last scene of this film has a unique twist. Mm -hmm. That's what makes this film dynamic actually quite dynamic. Yeah. I appreciated the acting performances also thinking about how they had to put this together in such a short period of time. As a former football coach, it's I love it when individual roles kind of like mold together to create a bigger, a more successful experience. So the stuff that's going on with the music and the um, by Parsons and the actors, Reese and Coleman, and even the director of photography, Jenny, <laughs> is uh, all of those things are, are really interesting overall. Um, so check it out. I think the, the culture film festival started yesterday. So, so we'll have a new slate on. of films coming out here. A soon. brand new slate next year. When we do the short film extravaganza, we can talk about them again. I like it. Yeah. All right. Did you, were you able to look at the devil's snare? Yes. Yeah. I, I did watch that one. Uh, I was really impressed by how good of a location they found. It seems like most of these films start with, well, here's a house that we have or a warehouse or, you know, here's a space that we have to use. And uh, when we teach our film class to our students, we're always stuck with the location of a school. Right. Or, you know, at best it's a empty classroom, but it still always looks like a classroom. Right. One of the, one of the better short films I had in my class was uh, they actually filmed it in the bathroom. But they didn't film it as a bathroom. It was something else. Yeah. And they had they had to come up with unique angles. So this one is set in a graveyard. Yeah, and I mean it it feels like something out of an old Western film. I like, like that. that whole location. I like that feeling. It's another film in the sort of horror genre. And in this film, voiceover is incredibly important. Um and that's something that I think that you did to some uh, success in your film class like you force them to use a voiceover in one of your film projects try to but the, the bad thing with voiceover is you have to really figure out the timing 
And right. I was never able to uh, impress that upon my students very well, to the importance of planning. Well, one of them I can remember from a few years ago actually worked out pretty well. Uh, and they used the giant pink gorilla that we yeah. have. So. Uh, another thing I would use to in this film is uh, how the single frame can have an impact. If you remember in Fight Club, that subliminal shot with Tyler Durden on the airplane. Uh, even though this is not necessarily a modern film, it it's uh, it has that sort of uh, subliminal shot or subliminal scene that happens to some effect throughout the the story. Yeah, some of the, the camera work film. is uh, reminiscent of like late '90s music video type stuff. Very Sh atmospheric. Yeah, they work pretty hard at developing an atmosphere. Um, pairs nicely with the short story of The Devil and Tom Walker. Did you ever read that? Yeah. It's a famous short story. It's the Faust legendary uh, sort of retelling. Another thing that I would do with this is uh, I would use this film for aspiring young actors and actresses to go to and, and check out online because it's uh, written by and directed by Jennifer Nicole Stang. Mm-hmm who has a, a, her own website. She has several projects going on. Uh, she has her own YouTube channel. This film was, uh, I think she provided the voice of the devil in it, in the devil's snare. And uh, her brother, Emmett Stang, is the, uh, is the lead character in the film. They seem to have a pretty good time together. But what I like about her website is if you go to the website, um, you can see her sizzle reel which has her acting in various guises and she's actually a pretty accomplished fencer yes <laughs> and dancer and uh she speaks multiple languages i would show this to my students as an example of how one doesn't necessarily have to rely on someone else to make the world or to make their dreams happen for them that through hard work and effort they can actually go out and try to accomplish something on their own with our modern technology we can share our ideas on a platform where we don't necessarily have to go as young actor or actress, go to Hollywood and wind up being a, a waitress or something in some dive bar. You can actually make your own way. Yeah, and with doing short films, you get to cut your teeth on a lot of different aspects of filmmaking. And you don't need a whole lot of capital to make these films. And it's not a huge investment of time. I mean, it's still significant, but nothing like if you were trying to do a 90-minute film. Right. Um, to that end, she is doing a 90-minute film now, but she has a series of short uh, documentary-type um, making-of videos that go along with that process. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of trying to work through making a larger film. It's sort of an interesting project and interesting concept for you to go out and check that out. Um, you can watch this movie also on IMDb. It's kind of interesting. She has a, an IMDb page there, and that's the link that we'll have on the website. The uh, Devil's Snare, Jennifer Nicole Stang. All right, this is another movie from a film festival. This was at the Knoxville Horror Film Festival. The teams of filmmakers have seven days to make a seven-minute film. They receive the genre and film elements on the day the festival begins. This film was uh, written and directed by Chad Cunningham from Wild Heart Studios. 
and it's a short film called Daisy. Now, did you see the movie? It was one of your most anticipated films from last year with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maggie? No, yeah. I haven't gotten a chance to watch Maggie yet. This sort of reminds me of what you were talking about when you talked about Maggie. Yeah, there have been quite a few of these like living with a zombie type films. Uh, Life After Beth and uh, there's some teenage romance one where he's a zombie but he still loves his girl. I think uh, I think my fiance watched that. Yeah. This one takes that uh, to an extreme, I think. Um, it's a treatise on like the responsibility we have to our children and living in a world that exists beyond our ability to control. So even though we try to get control for ourselves, we may lack the functionality to do that. So the film speaks to that interplay, and it's only five, and that, uh, well, five minutes and 17 seconds long. And it played at last year's Knoxville Horror Film Festival, and it earned an Emerging Filmmaker Award for Mr. Cunningham yeah. and his team. Uh, one of the things I really like, and this is at the end of the movie, but I won't. it doesn't spoil anything, they show a TV broadcast. Oh, yeah, they tie that in together. And it has a very different look than the rest of the film. And that's got to be hard because you're using probably the same equipment, same camera, but to achieve that different cinematic look. I'd love to give my students a project like that where you really do have to create two unique looks during the course of your film. Ah, that's... You know, to force them to use the camera and to understand how you use lighting and focus. And then force them to use the editing tools inside Mm -hmm. of our... uh, What do we use? iMovie? Yeah. Um, Another thing that I would use this movie for is the... He worked with composer Travis Patton. We have filmmakers, or we've had students, I've had students who were interested in scoring films. And I think this is a pretty interesting exercise in that as well. The uh, composer of our theme music, Elijah Steele, is uh, interested in doing that. I think he's going to college to try to figure out how to compose music for films. So if we have students like that, we can show them a film like this and say, hey, this person did it in less than seven days, you know. Uh, actually, I think he scored the film in less than two days. So you can find this film at Wild at Heart Studios, or sorry, wildheartstudios.net backslash short films. And then again, we'll have these links up online, but that's his uh, production company, Wild Heart Studios. Thank you, Mr. Cunningham, for Daisy. There's another film that we have. On my list, I put in here specifically for you because I thought that you'd be interested in it. It's a movie called Pigeon Impossible. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really like this. It's a, It began as a sketch just about a exor- uh, man struggling with a box. And it was an exercise to teach Lucas Martel, a 23-year-old aspiring director from Illinois, how to animate 3D film. And it evolved into this five-year enterprise that he actually did a making of blog, I think like a weblog, and uh, showed people the process and uh, put this out for free online. He made it for about 10,000 bucks, I think. But they said if, uh, um, if it had been made professionally with professional animators, it would have cost at least $1.3 million. Wow. Yeah. So it's an interesting little movie. Uh, sort of like a spy genre. And what I like about it is I can't see 3D, 
because I have the, I can only really see very well out of one eye. Mm-hmm. So kind of eliminates my ability to see 3D. But this movie, when I saw it online, looked like I could see where the 3D would work well. And I can see how they were able to get those layers in the film through the animation. Even as someone who doesn't necessarily see 3D, but I live in a 3D world, I can see how this movie replicates that as an animated film about a pigeon in a flying box or a flying briefcase. So that's why I put it in there for you. Yeah, no, I was very impressed uh, when I started watching the making of features and seeing that, you know, this is what one person can do uh, in animation. Normally, I mean, we think of uh, huge studios having to produce these films, but instead it's this one guy. And I mean, he goes through the whole process. I think it's like an 11 part series that you can watch on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he works for FX PhD, which is a group of guys who will actually teach you all the computer stuff online in classes. And they put out a podcast, the VFX show, which I've loved for years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually one of the hosts. He lives close by. We may be able to get him on the show here in the future. Yeah, does he teach in Richmond? Yeah, he teaches at um, VCU. VCU, yeah. Um, this is You can find this film on MightyCoconut.com called Pigeon Impossible, directed by Lucas Martel. So it was one of the first viral um, projects. So those are the um, main films that I picked out for this little, to showcase on our special edition here. Yeah. Writer-director John Cunningham was someone that made a short film with his friends and family when he was uh, in his 20s. He's a London-based filmmaker. He follows us on Twitter. I looked at one of his short films online, BLT, and I shared that with you. Yeah, this is what kind of got us going down this uh, trail. Yeah, it inspired us to make this special edition. We were able to uh, have an interview with Mr. Cunningham, and he shared with us his process and the way that he went about, um, you know, putting together his short films. The Asylum was a short horror film, and then, well... Not by our definition. I think it's about like 40 minutes long. And then BLT is only 12 minutes and 12 seconds long. And these are going to be included in the link on Vimeo. But we wanted to share with you excerpts from the interview that we had with him. Um, we probably have to apologize a little bit for the sound quality on his end. Uh, mm-hmm. He, were, he It was, was a transatlantic phone call. Right. So BLT and Asylum. You can watch those two films before... You listen to the interview, and you might have a better appreciation for what we have to say, uh, or what he has to say. Um, So we want to share that with you now. John Cunningham is the writer, director, and editor of two short films you can watch on Vimeo. The first, Asylum, is a horror short which he made with his friends and family several years ago. And he also includes on that channel the award-winning BLT a film that dramatizes an exchange between two men who share more similarities than differences. We started the interview with him by asking about his inspirations and why he chooses to work artistically in film. Fine, thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's it's fantastic. I think first and foremost, I'm a film fan. Um, From a very young age, I was obsessed with movies. Um, And back then... Um, I'm 38 years old now, so this was the 1980s, and back then it was 
it wasn't it was quite unusual uh, nowadays everybody seems to be into films and computer games and, and everything it's quite the norm but back then you know I, I can remember there was only two of us in my classroom who loved movies and um, it, it, today it's it's a completely different thing. Everyone's um, it, it, so it's it's potentially harder to stand out. But then I, you know, I was always into films, and I thought one day I'd love to make one. And so I did. When in my early twenties, I, I made a, a film with a couple of friends, and um, it was always the way to to, to just do that. Try to try to um, do what you love, and, and that was it, really. Yeah, my, that was actually my love letter to John Carpenter because one of my favourite films of all time was was Halloween, and so I, you know, that really was my number one movie, and and he's my number one director, mm-hmm. and so I, I, one of the things starting out um, as a young filmmaker at the time was horror seemed to be the easiest. Um, Thing. And I, I still stand by that. I think that students, when they start out, they tend to go uh, and make horror films. And, and I think it's because it, it's relatively easy. John Carpenter himself often talked about how uh, one of the hardest genres he would ever do was comedy. He absolutely hated it and he found it very, very difficult. But horror came naturally to him. And that's that's what I found. I found that horror is a, a kind of go-to thing, if you like. Um, and so that's what we did. Another important thing that Cunningham does very well is communicating his themes and ideas visually. The first few minutes of BLT, for example, contains very little dialogue, yet the mood and tone of the story is well-established and the transitions are handled deftly. Taken holistically, the dialogue and imagery go hand-in-hand. Hand. He shared with us that process. The opening actually was an afterthought. I didn't actually write any of that in the script where the, the businessman uh, has that dramatic opening. When when I shot the, the first day of filming, um, I only had access to one of the actors. So the, the Ross Williams, who plays the homeless man, I only had him for one day. And so we had to do everything involving Steve Malloy, the businessman actor, and Ross Williams, all in one day. And all the other stuff, I needed to make the movie much more grander, much more bigger, and feel bigger. So as an afterthought, I then added, I, I had asked Steve Malloy more, and I was able to build the picture, make it bigger, with a dramatic opening. But the actual film script started with just a pair of them approaching the alleyway, and then he jumps out of the bin and, and does all that. Then afterwards, you can think about, okay, well, we've done the script now. How can we make this much more grand? I mean, it's funny. It, it, one of the ma- most amazing things about Twitter is I get, I do get interpretations from from people that, you know, I didn't account for. But one of the things that's great is when it does land and, and one of the, the, the opening part with the businessman on the bench eating a sandwich and, you know, he sees a he sees a camera and things like this. That they were, they were deliberate, and and it's great when people get the transition between the homeless man um, playing with a bottle of alcohol, and then the pen 
from the businessman. And that's a very obvious uh, transition between the two characters that will eventually meet in the alleyway. So even though I said some stuff, I, I wanted to make it grander. There, there was a lot, as you saw in the storyboards, that were deliberate images um, that, that I wanted to convey the message through that as well. But you've got to be careful because people don't like you being too obvious as well. So what, if you're being really obvious about visual stuff, people don't like that as well, especially if you're doing tropes or cliches. You know, if my homeless man, for example, had a bag, a red bag on a stick mm. and, and things like this, you know, and so one of the things, one of the negatives actually, people point out that the homeless man is very, very clean. And I just thought, well, it, to me anyway, it would have been a cliche to have him all dirty because, you know, on the streets of London, they're not all dirty. You know, they're, they're not, but they do wash. I, I watched a lot of um, documentaries on homeless people. It's been something I've studied for a long, long time. They do go to areas to clean themselves and things like that. So I, I felt it would have been a cliche if he, if he was, if he had literal filth all over his face and things like that. There's multiple messages that I covered in the film. One of the ones that was absolutely paramount for me was drug addiction. And in the case of the homeless man, alcohol addiction. And I, I used to encounter a lot of people that would claim that their attitude towards somebody addicted to, to drugs or alcohol was that it was almost as if people think that they're doing it deliberately and that they, that they've disengaged from life and that they, they can't be asked to do the normal thing of having a job and, and all this. And one of the messages of BLT, and I really wanted to get this strongly across, which was that you, you can't, they can't, these people addicted are, are absolutely captured by the, the addiction or the drug. And I actually know this personally. Um, unfortunately, um, members of my family have been in, in this situation and it affects it affects uh, there, there's a statistic that to every alcoholic there's at least five people around them that's going to be affected by this and so I really really don't like the fact that most people think that drug people addicted to these things are doing it that there's some kind of thing that they're doing it deliberately and, and that's the mess in, in the film BLT there's a line where he says to the businessman when a teacher asks a bunch of kids um, what they want to be when they grow up uh, they say policeman or fireman they never say they want to be a pisshead and that was a very important line for me because I want I want to let them know that he, he hasn't chosen that life you know no, nobody chooses to be in that situation. It's an absurd idea. One of the most overlooked parts of the filmmaking process is planning. So we asked Mr. John Cunningham to talk to us about how he went about planning out BLT. Okay, so between the two films, they were drastically different. Um, I was By the time I filmed BLT, um, it didn't necessarily come together in the editing room. It was heavily, heavily... I. I I say when it comes to BLT, it was designed with an inch of its life. It was 
storyboarded, every shot was planned, and the reason for this was I was using actors now for the first time, and I didn't want to be seen as somebody who didn't know what they were doing, so I, I needed to plan everything to death. Asylum was a drastically different process because it was I was just using friends, and they were available all the time. It was a friend of my brother and my brother that were going to be in the film, and nothing was storyboarded in Asylum. It was all in my head. Now, the problem was this with Asylum was when you when I was that age, um, and you were saying your students are about uh, seventeen mm-hmm. years old and stuff. When you're that age, you do have a sense that everything you film should go into there, should, should go into the project you're doing. By the time I got to BLT, I realized that the internet audience are not going to just sit there and watch uh, people walking about. In Asylum, I had a lot of walking at the beginning of the movie, and I liked it. I thought it was good. It added... My whole design for Asylum was I wanted to bore people at the beginning, and then by the end of the movie, they were heavily entertained because there's gore, there's action, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Asylum. But when I, when for the first time when I put Asylum out to the internet in 2006, I think it was, a lot of the comeback was, God, there's a lot of walking at the beginning. <laughs> and I realized it was almost like a test audience. The way Hollywood tests their movies to audiences to try to, to try to trim and edit. And by then I realized that you've got to get to the crux of your story pretty quickly. And so that's what I did with BLT. I, at that point, I realized, no, we've got to get there pretty pretty quick. And with BLT, I was able to take a couple of seconds off shots here and there. So if I had a, if I had a shot of a building, a London building, I sat there and I loved the shots. And the original cut of BLT was 15 minutes. It's now 12 minutes, 12 seconds. And nothing is really missing. So I was able to lose those couple of minutes and not have anything feel like it's missing. And this is where you come into the art of editing where you trim a couple of seconds away here or there. And you're not necessarily sacrificing anything. You're just trimming away enough of a building shot or a sunset or something like that. And then I I was able to tighten up the dialogue between the two characters, the homeless man and the businessman. And it's so tight now that it feels like a genuine conversation. Another mistake people make is they leave a lot of uh, space between conversation. That can end up looking quite amateur as well when people leave gaps, a lot of gaps, because they think they're being dramatic or artistic. But you need to get the flow of a conversation right. The actors in this film... Stephen Malloy and Ross Williams both received awards for outstanding performance at the Zed Fest Film Festival. As this was Mr. Cunningham's first experience working with professional actors, we asked him about that experience. Well, that, that's a funny story. Um, I I wrote the movie. I was ready to go, and I put an ad in the in the on the internet for actors, and I got about three people. And they, from a casting point of view, they they didn't look uh, the part for me. Um, and 
I had sound bites from the actors, and I, you know, they weren't the right voice. I couldn't, you know, they. When you write your own script, you you really have voices in your in your mind, you know. And uh, I then went onto a website that deals with actors in the UK, and uh, I found Ross Williams. And one of his shots, ironically, one of his um, actor photos was as a homeless man. And suddenly it was amazing because he looked, he had the face and he looked the part. Uh, and then he had a showreel, so I, I, I played his showreel. And I said, I, I, I thought, how am I going to get this guy to work in my film? So I just reached out. I just saw that he had an email. And I clicked on his email, and I sent him an email, and I said, look, I think you're very good. Uh, I've got this script. Um, I'd be very honored if, if you'd be in the film. And shortly, he then responded, and we talked for about a week back and forth. And he then suggested uh, five other actors that he wanted to um, be opposite against. And uh, so I looked at their showreels. I, quite frankly, I didn't like any of the actors, but there was one guy who didn't have a showreel at all. He didn't have one. And it was uh, an actor called Stephen Malloy. But he had the face. He had this face, you know, and but no showreel. And I thought, I'm, gonna ta I'm just going to take uh, a shot, and, and I'll use Stephen Malloy. And here's the weird thing. The morning we shot BLT, the very morning we did 90% of the movie, was the morning all of us met for the very first time. Wow. So uh, they had a week. They had a week with the script, and then when we met on the the Saturday to film BLT, we we got off the train and we all met at a, a tube station in London, Tottenham Court Road, and that was the first time. I'd seen them in person, and we shook hands, <laughs> and then, and then we just went into an alleyway, and, you know, took off from there. I mean, it's, it sounds a bit weird when you say it like that, but that's how it went down. But I was really, really pleasantly surprised when I, when I saw them acting, and it was a, a moment I'm never going to forget actually, when, because uh, I had a. a a friend of mine who was uh, the location assistant who was also in asylum, he was helping me with, with the equipment. And when Stephen Malloy and Ross Williams were speaking my words, uh, as they were sitting there practicing my words, that was quite a, a wonderful moment. I just kept grinning. I, I just kept grinning because I just thought, my God, actors are actually saying my words. Hmm. And it was a, it was a fantastic moment. We asked uh, Mr. Cunningham to talk about any problems he ran into while filming and how he solved these problems. What happened was the alleyway that we filmed in was such a fantastic visual, visually stunning alleyway, I felt. It was, I, I, I um, looked at loads of alleyways when I did location hunting. I looked, spent a whole weekend looking at alleyways. And when I landed on that one, I... I found that it was perfect. Later it would transpire that that alleyway is used in a Doctor Who episode in the 1960s. So the BBC themselves felt that that alleyway was also, uh, you know, 
filmic, and, and they used it in Doctor Who. Um, the problem was, and we didn't, we didn't actually know this until it was too late, but the alleyway uh, had these air vents, and it, it, the microphones were just killed, so the dialogue was lost completely. So this was a true nightmare in the editing process. I felt that I'd lost my film. And so I was considering starting again. I was considering scrapping the whole thing and start again because I did not want this to look like a, a Hong Kong dubbed movie because I just thought ADR is impossible. You, 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 ADR is a tool that you use to either do narration or uh, do slight little pickups where an aeroplane flew over and you need to replace the aeroplane. With ADR, you've got to be extremely, extremely careful and so I spoke to the actors and I said, let's, let's try to, to dub the movie. And it seemed like a crazy idea, but I thought, well, hang on, if it's the same microphone that's used, and if I can add some reverb to the, to the dialogue, and if I can isolate the dialogue and get it clean, and not have it bounce off of my bedroom walls, so I built a I built a makeshift um, sound booth which I lovingly called Duvet Studios because it was duvets that were hanging over the the wooden structure and um, and I invited the actors back and they were more than willing to come back and 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 they watched the scene and this was the hardest part of the whole thing and getting them to sync it up and I had to do certain audio tricks and cut, cut certain bits so it lined up correctly. And we worked a long time on the ADR uh, just to get that right. Basically, 95% of the movie is actually dubbed. 95%. Well, the dedication of the actors, the, the, the work that we put into getting that right, and, and it was just, it was, they did an amazing job and we just, we, if you really, if you do a lot of hard work on these things, you can you can save it. Otherwise, the only option is to start again. And we, none of us really wanted to start again. And we saved the movie. We actually we saved it. And what it allowed me to do, because it was a drama, and what was so important about this movie is dialogue. It allowed me to control the levels so that the speech was the most important thing of the film. So I was, I was able to create um, foley for the background and when we leave the movie and go into that end credits and there's no music and all you hear is the streets of London uh, foley, it adds uh, an extra layer of power behind it, I think. With every film, and you've probably heard this before from, from Hollywood directors and, and everything else, but with every film, you learn all the time because you, you are given experiences that you simply can't um, imagine on the day of filming. One of the things that really hurt us on BLT was time and the sunshine. Uh, from a technical point of view, the sun killed us that day because it was it was moving across the sky. It wouldn't stand still for us, you know. It should have done, but it didn't. It moved across the sky, and so there's a, a keen eye will see that we did have. Um, lighting problems on the day, you know, if you're using natural light, if you're using single camera, that can be a huge problem. Um, 
because you have to do some lines first and then you move on to the next and all the while the hours are passing by and the sun is moving across the sky so the best way really the most ideal way you can do things is in a locked down studio where you have control over the elements but the elements can be quite they're, they're things you really have to work around you know one of the reasons why we really are looking forward to teaching Mr. Cunningham's films to our students is because in addition to the short, there are also behind-the-scenes featurettes. Uh, we asked him to talk a little bit about his special effects videos and his behind-the-scenes featurettes. Which is ironically harder to put together than actually making the film itself. It's one of these weird things where you want to be able to show the compositing and, and stuff like that, and, and those are very, very hard to put together. Um, the film actually, Asylum, although, you know, quite amateur today, in the time that it was made, um, nobody was really, there, there wasn't the market that there is today. The independent market has really exploded with digital technology. But this is very, you know, the early 2000s. There was no YouTube. There was none of this stuff. And so Asylum wasn't actually made to be shown to, you know, uh, a global audience at all. It was made really for friends and family. And the opportunity when, you know, everything's changed now on YouTube and everything. And so, yes, if you look at Asylum today, you might think, oh, it's a bit amateur. But in the context of the time, you won't believe how much work went into that movie. BLT, put it into context, BLT took four days to, to make and uh, a couple of months actually to do some post. But Asylum was 42 days over the course of two years. Hmm. So it was, a, it was a much more bigger, harder task, although BLT looks more professional because it's made nowadays and I'm older and stuff like that, but yeah. Finally, Mr. Cunningham told us an interesting story about how this film was both literally and figuratively a labor of love. My wife was heavily pregnant during, during BLT. Uh, so she she couldn't be there on the set to um, you know uh, do the things that because in the in the in the practice stuff before she was there doing the makeup and things like this so she was there as producer and uh, literally producing life but um, so when I did the first it, it was very strange when I did the very first edit of BLT and I kid you not. Um, I sent it off to um, Stephen Malloy, who I kept in the loop quite a lot because he, he was very interested in the process. And I love anybody who's interested in the process. And he was such a positive uh, influence and, and a really good person to, to riff off. Uh, Ross was a very busy man. He, he was moving house and he was actually moving away from us, from, from London. So he, he you know, he... He had to do his thing and then and then go, and you know he had a lot of stuff going on. But with Steve, he, he kept in the loop. And um, the night I did the first full-on edit that had every element to the movie in the movie, I then had to go off to the hospital to then you know my my wife was giving birth that night, and it was a very amazing time. No, I was I was thinking that when I was in the alleyway filming um, the, the filming BLT, 
I never anticipated at all that it would get the response it did. I never, you know, all around the world, from different countries, people commenting on the film, and, and I never anticipated winning. Um, one of the best things for me was winning uh, the best screenplay. And I was really pleased that the actors also got acknowledged that they won outstanding performance in LA's uh, Z-Fest. And that was wonderful for them. And I, I, I was told at school that I'm no good at English, I'll never achieve much and stuff like this, because all I was interested in was movies and computer games. So to win Best Screenplay in America and have that certificate it's something I can show my, my children, and that is so powerful. It's so powerful. You can't imagine. So that was our first interview with a filmmaker across the pond. Yeah, we're going transatlantic. I like it. I like that guy. He's very insightful and uh, honest. I really, I really appreciate the way he responds to almost every single comment he gets on Twitter and on Vimeo about his films. I mean, I wanted to mention that in his, uh, in our interview with him, but I didn't get around to it. So Mr. Cunningham, thank you for being on the show with us. We really enjoyed listening to you and talking to you. And we hope to talk to you more in the future. We really appreciate the time that you put into this. All right. So that was our retrospective of short films for our special edition episode of the lab podcast. Episode 57. Wow. We're going to be at 100 before you know it. I feel like I'm 100 right now. <laughs> no, I feel like I'm... I can't do... The inverse of 57 is not good. <laughs> 75 is not going to work. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you uh, can give us any feedback on short films that you watched from our list here or short films of your own that you know of, we'd really appreciate it. Where can they contact us, Mr. Two Frames? We're available at email if they email thelaughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at thelaughpodcast, and we're available to be messaged on facebook.com slash thelaughpodcast. All right, so for Mr. Two Frames over there... It's been a pleasure. Pox at Bonham, everybody. There be dragons. most overlooked parts of filmmaking is the planning process, so we asked Mr. John Cunningham to talk about his process for planning. (laughs) 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 This is why I don't work as voiceover actor.